word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Read that far from God's word. All Christians get pushed back. Here the apostle Paul, or Peter, is writing to believers who are undergoing persecution. So what's the distinctive lesson of this exact passage? Because Christ suffered for us, we rejoice in his sufferings. Number one, we expect the suffering. Let me read verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So with regard to suffering, we are supposed to expect it, to not be surprised, to not be astonished. There are seasons in the Christian life when we lack protections, lack supplies, and experience losses. Christians do receive persecution. It's not surprising. It's not even strange or uncommon. Through the last 2,000 years since Peter wrote these words, God's people have experienced suffering. The spiritual enemy attacks. The enemy attacks our brothers and sisters. Jesus taught that since the world hated Jesus, it will hate us too. So two phrases in particular in verse 12. One phrase, when it comes upon you. And another phrase, we're happening to you, are the important phrases from this verse. Persecution and trials do not just happen in the sense of being random accidents. Trials are a part of God's plan. And on that basis, we expect the suffering. That's our first point. Moving to our second point from verses 13 and 14, we rejoice in the suffering. This is where it gets tough. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What does God ask us to do when we're suffering? God asks us to rejoice. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. When talking about suffering. Christ taught us to respond with gladness. So Peter here explains how. We share in Christ's sufferings. He redeemed us through his own sufferings on the cross, of course, and it provided to us redemption. Then it's an honor beyond that to be counted worthy of experiencing some suffering in his kingdom because we are united with him. We rejoice that in our sufferings, Christ draws closer to us. He is with us during our suffering so that in our suffering, we experience the nearness and accompaniment of Christ himself with us. While we are suffering, Christ never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Our hearts become bonded to him and trust in him more. Then going on with verse 14, Peter writes, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
We rejoice in our suffering when it shows us the ministry of the Spirit of God rests upon us. What a tremendous blessing is listed in verse 14. What are the two descriptions of the Spirit here? One, the Spirit of glory. Two, the Spirit of God. And what does that Spirit do? The Spirit rests on us, blessing us. We do not have to wait to heaven to experience that glory. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory right now in this life, in the present tense, rests upon us. This invisible power and glory helps us understand how Christians are to deal with suffering. And in particular, the story we'll get into in a moment, how Christian martyrs, while they are courageously standing for Jesus, could be insulted and far more even be put to death for Christ and rejoice to do so. And third, our third point, last point, we examine the suffering. Examine the suffering, verses 15 through 19, just a few high points here. A fiery trial purifies us so that we see more clearly. And what do we see? We see that not all hardships we face are persecution. We'll see one example in a story tonight about Tyndale. We see that some problems are just a part of the human life in a broken world. Almost everyone experiences them. If you get a flat tire on the way to Bible study, that's not the devil trying to keep you from going to Bible study. It's just a flat tire. People get flat tires, you see. Uh, We also see that some suffering we bring on ourselves through disobedience. And we ought to suffer because we live in a world where we reap what we sow. We break the law of God or some law of wisdom and we suffer for it. We commit a spiritual crime and we feel pain. If we should be ashamed, then we are ashamed because of our sin. And even then, though, Christ graciously will remove our sin, remove our shame, show us grace, support us. However, Christ does not always remove the suffering and the direct result of that sin and shame. Verse 16 has these words, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Effectively, he's saying, Praise God that we bear the name of Christ, even if that name brings us suffering. Christ is not ashamed of us. We need not be ashamed of Christ. We still get to bear his name. We sing and rejoice to be identified as the children of God, even if it comes with a heavy price tag. Now, we must have serious and deep concern for the souls of others in this world. It's not our place to get caught up into seeking vengeance to those wicked sinners who hurt us or hurt our friends. Uh, Soon enough, God will render his own verdict. Instead, we must consider since our sins have such consequences, even when laced with mercy, what sort of misery is awaiting the ungodly when they go to meet our God. So a couple of concluding applications are taken from verse 19. Therefore, written to whom? To Christians. How are Christians described? Listen to how Christians are described. Those who suffer according to God's will. Is that what you signed up for? <laughs> Those who suffer according to God's will is one way to describe Christians. What are we instructed to do? <clears throat> Three things. Number one, I'm sorry, just two things. I cut the third point out. <laughs> I was trying to shorten it. So, um, no, I do have three things. I, I do have three things. I can't even count. Okay, hang in there with me. I'm so excited about Tyndale. I'm almost done with the message. So, entrust ourselves to God is the first thing we're instructed to do. Are we hesitating to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator? Let me read verse 19 again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls 
to a faithful creator while doing good. Our God is already holding us. We can put all our burdens down. How is God described here in verse 19? He's our creator. Right, what sort of adjective is used to describe the creator? If I just asked you before I read this passage, what adjective would you give me to describe the creator? You would probably say powerful, right? The power of creation. He's powerful enough to create, powerful enough to sustain all that he's created. Yeah, true. But it's not the attribute that Peter selected to emphasize here. Peter asked us to entrust ourselves to the creator who is faithful. The faithful creator. A word that means reliable, trustworthy, unfailing. Our creator is faithful. We can entrust ourselves to him because he is trustworthy, because he's faithful. He brings us the daily sunrise, the annual four seasons. We can trust him for our safety. He's sovereign over every inch of his creation. We can trust him with our souls. He has saved us by the blood of Christ. Luke 23, 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Luke 23, 46, so our Father in heaven has faithfully brought us salvation through the death of his son. Where do we entrust our souls to God? In prayer. When we entrust ourselves into God's hands, we're doing what Jesus did there in that prayer. We're doing so with the death and resurrection of Christ in our minds. Since Jesus rose again, we can trust God with our sufferings and commit our suffering souls to our faithful creator. Point one, entrust ourselves to God. Application two, from the same verse, do good. Do good. Last three words of verse 19, while doing good. It means deeds of love, actions of hospitality, works of service, performing mercy. Doing good, as Peter well knows, can be exhausting. Um, One farmer observed, the hardest thing about milking cows is they don't stay milked. We get tired out. And so let me remind you, I know we didn't cover this tonight, but if you're in the opening to your passage there, look back to verse 11. Anyone who serves should serve with the strength that God supplies. Maybe you get tired from doing good, yes, but God provides the strength for us to continue keep on doing good. You cheer up your gloomy friend. Now she's gloomy again. God provides the strength to cheer her up again. You helped a family member with money problems before. Now they need money again. You submitted to the supervisor at work, the committee chairperson, the spouse on this issue before, and here it comes again. You babysat for that family before. You gave that woman the same recipe six times already. Doesn't she have a recipe filing system? How can I be expected to give her the same recipe the seventh time? You invited that person to church before. You offered a ride to that person before. It's the context of verse 19, continuous action verb of doing good. Entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator, which supplies us the strength to continue doing good. Our second point, and I do have a third one, rejoice. If by sheer repetition, there's one thing Peter emphasized in this paragraph, it's a call to rejoice. And Peter, the apostle, agrees with Peter, the apostle, and Paul uh, agrees with Paul, the apostle, and the apostle Paul was imprisoned and beaten repeatedly, and Paul was, quote, 2 Corinthians 11.26, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And yet Paul was 
always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6, 10, uh, uh, 6 verse 10. The chief of prisoners wrote from the loneliness, injustice, and distress of his cell, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Philippians 4, 4. Paul might seem to you to be abnormal, extraordinary, or even spectacular. You might even think that Paul was an anomaly, therefore we can't draw lessons from him. But keep a lookout. Start observing more and more as you read Scripture, the men and women, are they like Paul or unlike Paul? More and more as you look across your life at Christians, are they more and more alive today, more and more like Paul or less and less like Paul? Braving inconceivable trials, conflict, cancer, betrayal, abandonment, persecution, loss, with surprising joy. Do you see that? If you see that, it's your faithful creator at work, not only causing them to do good, but causing them to rejoice when there's nothing else that could. Their lives testify to this truth. If we look to Christ when we're thrown into the dungeon of suffering, he will lead us to secret sanctuaries of peace and strength and hope and even rejoicing. Now let me tell you a story of Tyndale. God placed a baby named William into a hard-working family of farmers in rural western England. William Tyndale was born in 1494, just 11 years after Martin Luther was born over in Germany. At age 12, a farmer boy named William became quite a young scholar as he went to school. He studied grammar, math, geometry, music theory, rhetoric, logic, and philosophy. I list those because you might just think, oh, those old schools hardly did anything. They were serious about schooling. Magdalene Hall led to Magdalene College. Magdalene College led to Oxford University. Yes, the Oxford University, the most distinguished university in England. He showed a great aptitude and progress in the languages under the finest classical scholars in the world at that time. He was very industrious in his studies, had a great love for this book we call the Scriptures. He continued advancing through Oxford from 1506 to 1516. About 10 years he spent studying at Oxford, earning the various degrees, doing some teaching, until he held a Master of Arts as a university-trained linguist, and he became ordained as a minister during that time. I just ask that you remember, in 1517, right in this window of time, over in Germany, Luther is posting his 95 theses. Now fast forward just a little bit to 1519, just two years later, Pastor Tyndale finishes at Oxford and continues his studies at Cambridge. He did both. Oxford, now he's going to Cambridge University for another advanced degree. By 1520, a group of students at Cambridge, including Tyndale, gathered regularly at a local restaurant, a place you might have heard of, it's called the White Horse Inn, to consider the ideas of this Luther over in Germany. These informal gatherings became the preparation for the English Reformation. Later, in fact, arising out of this group, two became archbishops, seven became bishops, and eight became martyrs. In 1521, Tyndale took a tutoring job, all done with Cambridge now. He took a tutoring job for the wealthy family of a nobleman named Sir John Walsh at his estate. 
Tyndale also preached regularly at a local congregation nearby. In fact, every chance he found, Tyndale preached the Bible. He talked about the Bible. He translated the Bible into the language of the people in his church. There were some Latin Bibles, but most of the people in England did not know Latin. They knew English. They are in England, after all. So Tyndale concluded this, quote, It was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth, unless the scripture were laid before their eyes in their mother tongue, end quote. So the passion and beliefs of Tyndale were becoming so strong that Tyndale found himself in frequent disputes with officials of the Catholic Church over the nature of the true gospel. Before long, in 1522, Tyndale was called before the Catholic Chancellor of Worcester, a man named John Bell, and Mr. Bell warned Tyndale about his controversial views. No formal charges were brought that day against Tyndale, but this conflict was a forewarning of days to come. Since Tyndale lived at the home of this nobleman, Sir John Walsh, Tyndale would often find himself elbow to elbow elbow at dinner time with local Catholic priests. They were guests of his boss, Mr. Walsh. So Tyndale became increasingly appalled as he would chat with these local priests about their lack of knowledge of the scriptures. During one meal, as a particular example, Tyndale got into a debate with a Catholic parish pastor and it became heated. The priest ended up saying this, and I quote, it is better to be without God's law than to be without the Pope's law. Pastor Tyndale was provoked very much by this, and I'll let you be the judge if this sounds a little like Luther. Pastor Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. In addition, Tyndale made this personal commitment within himself. Quote, If God spare my life, I will make it so in England that the plowboys will know more of the Bible than many of the priests do now. End quote. From this point forward, Tyndale took on the ambitious task of translating the Bible into English from Greek, and it became the dominant pursuit of his life. To pursue this, Tyndale moved to London. 1523, to seek official authorization from the church for a translation and publication of an English Bible that would be backed by the Catholic Church. It was denied. They feared that Tyndale and that sort of work would cause an upheaval in England because by now they understood what Germany was going through. Luther's German Bible, published and released in 1522, had thrown all of Germany into turmoil. They didn't want any such things to be happening in England. Tyndale only became more convinced that England needed a Bible that the common person could read. And since the Roman Catholic Church would not support it, when and how could it be done? He's not about to give up. While Tyndale was in London, he had preached several Sundays at a church there. He met a wealthy businessman who heard Tyndale and decided to support him in his endeavors with financial expenses. This donation was so generous that it allowed Tyndale to stay in London for a year. That year enabled Tyndale to develop a plan for translating the Bible from Greek into English. Then the plan would require this radical step. He realized, quote, there was no place to do it in all of England, end quote. The Englishman Tyndale must leave England. In the spring of 1524, at the age of 30, 
Tyndale sailed away from England in order to start a task producing a book in the English language for his countrymen. To produce that book in English without the consent of the king of England at that time was a clear breach of established law. Every word on every page that Tyndale ever translated was an illegal action. Never again would William return to his beloved homeland. Tyndale was a man on the move. For the rest of his life, first he headed to Germany, selected the city of Hamburg. Didn't take long before Tyndale took a journey from Hamburg to Wittenberg. Work on translation there. Now, because he was in danger, it could be that Melanchthon, Luther, and Tyndale met, but they're keeping it to themselves, and we'll find out one day. It seems likely that while in Wittenberg, Tyndale met the already internationally famous German reformer, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther. Melanchthon was a master of Greek and would have been very helpful for the cause of taking something from Greek into English. But whether Tyndale met Luther and Melanchthon or not, Tyndale was in their city, Wittenberg, Germany, for three months and did a lot of work. He completed a major portion of the work of translating the New Testament into English while there, but he had to move again this time to Cologne, Germany. Tyndale wanted to print his English Bible in Cologne, but Tyndale was discovered there, so he had to flee again, now to the city of Worms, Germany, arriving there in 1526. Finally, the first edition of the New Testament in English was published. Not in England, but in Germany. Not handwritten, but now, for the first time, mechanically produced. Not with the permission of the King of England, but rather printed on unauthorized printers, And as Tyndale said it, the people could read, quote, in their own tongue, the wonderful works of God, end quote. Each New Testament cost a week worth of wages, which was a remarkably affordable price for what he had accomplished. By the summer of 1526, the church officials in England had discovered this underground circulation of Tyndale's New Testaments making their way back to England in wheat bags. They were enraged, and they responded by confiscating as many of these New Testaments as they could. They passed a new law in England, forbidding any persons to buy or sell or possess or read the English New Testament. But the passing of that law only made the people of England more eager to get a copy of the forbidden book and read it. The Catholic Bible, I'm sorry, the Catholic Bishop of London was a loyal Catholic, willing to stoop to violence. He tried very hard to stop the circulation of these Tyndale New Testaments. The bishop decided the best way was for him to buy up all the copies of Tyndale's New Testaments that he could find, gather them, and publicly burn them sending a message to everyone. So the bishop hired a businessman who knew Tyndale personally to go find Tyndale and buy all of the New Testaments that Tyndale was producing. Tyndale knew that the bishop had planned to burn them, but Tyndale sold them anyway. Sure enough, the bishop had a great bonfire burning New Testaments. However, the very high price that he had given to Tyndale enabled him with a surge of money to print again. And this time, a larger and better edition that he was able to print before. And soon, the Bishop of England would discover that instead of stopping the circulation of the Word of God, he'd only funded its increase. Who's behind this but God? 
The bishop might as well try to stop the sun from shining or the wind from blowing or the tide from coming in than to stop the word of God from coming around the world. By June 1528, an English church official sent three agents to search for Tyndale. Tyndale moved again and moved again for his safety. This time he's in Marburg. The English agents could not find the sneaky Tyndale. A short time later, he's forced to change his strategy and he moved again to a city called Antwerp, which in today's geography is in Belgium. Here Tyndale completed the translation from Hebrew into English of the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Tyndale concluded that it was too dangerous to stay in such a large city as Antwerp, so he got on a ship, but that that trip was interrupted by a severe storm that even caused a shipwreck. Sadly, all of Tyndale's books, writings, and translations of the first five books of the Old Testament were lost. This is the part where I mean this wasn't direct persecution. This just happens in a broken world. Sometimes there's shipwrecks and storms and things get lost. But Tyndale, being Tyndale, started all over again. Moved to Hamburg with the help of a former classmate from Cambridge who he met there, Mr. Coverdale. Tyndale and Coverdale were able to work together to finish retranslating the first five books of the Old Testament from Hebrew to English in just ten months by the end of the year 1529. Our Herculean task, if you've ever worked in Hebrew. In January 1530, the little book was published and smuggled into England and distributed. In 1534, Tyndale had to move again, this time back to Antwerp, Belgium, welcomed in secret by English merchants living there who were wealthy shrewd and loyal. These businessmen protected and supported Tyndale, and at this, at this time, Tyndale revised his New Testament translation with a second edition, much improved. The New Testament in English, again, published in 1534, made 6,000 copies. They all sold out within a month. Tyndale went right to work on the next section of the Old Testament, now from Joshua through Second Chronicles. We, we might vote for Jeremiah, but we don't get to vote. This is just history. All of this translation William Tyndale accomplished from Joshua through Second Chronicles in the face of this fierce opposition, bitter persecution, in exile, and always on the move. A livid and dark Catholic church official in England hired a man and paid him a large sum of money to find Tyndale. Like Judas, the man took the offer. The man arrived in Antwerp where Tyndale was living in 1535. He made contacts with all the right merchants and followed the trail and led him back to Tyndale. He he met Tyndale in person and lied to him. He established this false friendship with Tyndale and soon he met again with Tyndale and lured him down a narrow alleyway where soldiers were waiting and they arrested Tyndale. After 12 years on the run as a fugitive, at last, They caught up with Tyndale and took him into custody. You might be wondering what happened to his work. Joshua, through 2 Chronicles, was not confiscated. Tyndale was taken to a castle north of Brussels. It had a large moat of water around it, seven towers, three drawbridges, impenetrable walls. It was a fortress of confinement. They put him in the lower belly of the castle, what we call the dungeon. 
literally. Shivering in a cold, damp dungeon beneath the castle prison, Tyndale waited more than a year for his trial to even begin. It was a mockery of justice. He was confined for 500 days. The Catholic Church was trying to send a message to all the English-speaking people. In the harsh winter of 1535, Tyndale wrote this from the dungeon. I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by personal discharge, which is much increased in, my sh- in this cell. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. I request a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency. Permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. Tyndale also wrote that these months were, quote, a long dying leading to dying. Tyndale shared the gospel. God converted the guard, the guard's daughter, and others of his household. Tyndale, cold and suffering, had a heart that was still on fire with gospel truth, and his testimony was red hot and pure. Finally, August of 1536, Tyndale's trial began. They had drawn up a long list of charges against him. He was condemned officially by the Catholic Church as a heretic. Because he had been a priest, there was a public event in which Tyndale appeared wearing priestly robes. Forced to kneel, his hands, as were the procedure, were scraped with a knife publicly to symbolize his loss of all the privileges of priesthood. The bread and the wine of communion were briefly placed into his hands and then removed before he could partake of them ceremoniously. He was stripped of his priestly vestments and reclothed as a regular citizen. He was then delivered over to the civil authorities for the sentence of death. Forced back into the dungeon cell, a steady stream of priests and monks came to harass him and ask him to recant his actions, none of which he ever recanted. October 6, 1536, Tyndale was brought out of the dungeons of the castle and brought to the southern gate of the town. A large crowd had assembled behind a barricade, and the massive crowd suddenly parted in order to make a pathway through. Someone is coming. It's the guards bringing Tyndale forward to his execution. The center of the circle of the crowd in the middle was a large circle on the ground. Inside the circle was... One cross made out of two giant beams of wood in the form of a cross. Hanging from the top of the center beam was a strong iron chain. At the base of the cross, there were brushwood, straw, and a strong uh, and, and logs bundled. With great pomp and pharisaical splendor, the main church leader and the church's great teachers took their seats as spectators to this event. The guards bound his feet to the bottom of the cross. The chain was fastened around his neck, pulling him tightly to the beam of wood. Loose logs rearranged around Tyndale to surround him with the combustible material. Gunpowder was sprinkled thoroughly across the brush. The executioner stood behind the cross, awaiting the signal from the main church leader to carry out the sentence. It was likely at this moment that Tyndale gazed into the heavens and cried forth in prayer, and I quote, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. The main church leader quickly gave the signal. The executioner quickly tightened the iron noose. He could say no more. 
strangling the Reverend Dr. William Tyndale. The crowd watched Tyndale gasp for air as he suffocated and died that way. His mere death did not satisfy or mollify the church leader or any of the main leaders. In fact, the main church leader grabbed a lighted wax torch and handed it to the executioner who threw it on the straw and the brushwood. The blazing fire caused the gunpowder to explode, blowing up the corpse. What remained of the limply hanging burnt body of Tyndale fell down into the raging fire below. Would you know it? The dying prayer of Tyndale was heard and answered by the Almighty God filled with mercy. In fact, God was way ahead of Tyndale. Unknown to Tyndale during his passing, a copy of the complete English Bible was already circulating through England. The complete work was predominantly drawn from Tyndale's own translation, but others had joined and filled in the missing books while he was in the dungeon. Less than a year after Tyndale's death, the eyes of King Henry VIII of England were opened, and he made a new law, placing a copy of the Word of God into every single church in the land of England so that all the people might come to church and read it and come to church to hear it read and to hear Christ preached. Within one year after Tyndale's death, seven or eight printings of the New Testament were circulated through England with royal permission and were distributed into homes for the people to read in their mother tongue, English. The stream of English Bibles into England was like a mighty river. All the plowmen in England were at last able to read and discuss the truths of the Bible among their relatives, friends, and countrymen. Bible translation into English. The Reverend Dr. William Tyndale advanced the Reformation movement in England and in Scotland. And the King James Bible was published just 75 years after Tyndale's death in the year 1611 and had as its basis the Tyndale Bible. I suspect the King James Bible had a big influence on your great-grandparents, your grandparents, your parents, and maybe yourselves. Add the fact that the English had become the international language and the missionary endeavor, how do we measure the missionaries that were sent out from the English-speaking world? And the ongoing influence of Tyndale extends to the farthest corners of the world. Praise be to our God.